Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, body positivity, and health at every size. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in weight-inclusive wellness. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food. Hey there, welcome to episode 100 of Food Psych. We made it! 100 episodes! It's taken so long to get to this point. Usually for most weekly podcasts, the 100th episode comes in the second year, but we have not been weekly this entire time. We've been going since 2013, but only weekly for the first year and now again. So finally, we are hitting episode 100, and it's a really good one. I'm so excited because Virgie Tovar is back on the podcast. She was a really integral guest in changing the direction of the podcast last season when I really solidified the mission of making this podcast about health at every size and fat acceptance and weight stigma and sort of dismantling all of those systems and really having this be an anti-diet space more than just an eating disorder recovery space. Virgie was the first guest I had who really spoke explicitly to the concept of fat acceptance. And so she told her story in episode 45, and you can go back and listen to that for her sort of typical food psych episode where she talks about her relationship with food growing up. But this is like version 2.0 or really version like 600.0 because we got so deep. We had such an amazing, far-ranging talk about so many different things, and she shared some really beautiful personal stuff that's been going on for her in the past couple of years that I think will really resonate and hopefully really help some folks listening feel connected and less alone. I couldn't have asked for a better 100th episode guest, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, just a couple of announcements. The first is you can get my free guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food, by going to christyharrison.com slash strategies, or by texting the word food psych to the number 44222. That's the word food psych, and the number to text is 44222, or you can go to christyharrison.com slash strategies on your computer computer and get it there. It's a really helpful quick start guide to the intuitive eating and non-diet approach for people who want a little more nitty-gritty guidance. And then of course I offer a lot more in-depth guidance in my online intuitive eating course, which you can learn more about at christyharrison.com slash course. It's a 13-week online course that helps you make peace with food, learn to trust your body, and integrate the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size into your daily life. christyharrison.com slash course is where you can find it. And finally, if you like the podcast and you want to help us reach more people, you can leave us a nice rating and review on iTunes. That really helps get the word out about the podcast, brings us up higher in the ratings so that more people find us, even when they're just looking for random health podcasts. And that's so cool because if someone's first health podcast they download is this one, as opposed to all the other diet culture podcasts out there, right? That is a win for health at every size and the non-diet community. So head to iTunes or your podcast app on your phone, type in food psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on the ratings and reviews tab, and you can leave us a nice rating and review there. All right, without any further ado, let's go talk to Virgie Tovar. 
So Virgie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's so good to talk with you again. We talked two and a half years ago, we were realizing on episode <laughs> 45, and it feels like a lifetime ago. It's true. <laughs> There's been so much, so much happening since then. So yeah, maybe, you know, I want to drive listeners to that if they want to hear your story, but catch us up on what's been going on in the last couple of years with you. Oh man, so many things. I've done a lot of lecturing. I started Babe Camp, which is a four-week online course for women who are ready to break up with diet culture. And I've worked with almost 200 people since then. And then in November, the most recent November, I took a group of women to Jamaica and we did a Babe Camp live retreat. And it was super, super magical. Um, I mean, honestly, it, it really like changed my cellular structure, I think being with them. And like, we ended up, I want to, I like the cutest thing or one of the cutest things that we did together at babe camp in Jamaica was that in the mornings we would get up and we would do like morning stretches and meditation overlooking the Caribbean sea you know, there was like sand and the sun was out, you know, and it's, it was very hot, right? It's like hot. And so we're in bikinis. And at one point I'm like, we're going to try something I just thought of. And it's called jiggle size. <laughs> Either do it naked or you can do it with your clothes on, whatever you want to do. But the point is that you spread out your arms and legs and you jiggle <laughs> for a full minute. And it's like, incredible, right? It's like, it's so wild, right? Because the jiggling like unearthed, this playfulness inside of your body. I don't know how to explain yeah. it. It's like it's like shaking up a little snow globe of like energy and magic or something. It sounds <laughs> so freeing because yeah, we're it's yeah. like we get in these rigid positions, like our arms are by our sides, or we're all in like yes. closed, right? And so just yeah, it feels totally. like childlike and explorative and playful. I actually am just stretching out my arms right now because that sounded so nice and I feel like I'm breathing better. Maybe I should do all my podcasts with my arms outstretched. <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah, no, and it's like, we, I think a lot of us wear like a sort of emotional, metaphorical girdle, mm. you know? I mean, like, because the whole point is that we, we have no motion in our body. I feel like there's this kind of premium placed on our bodies, not moving. I mean, maybe your boobs a little bit, but other than that <laughs> jiggle is extremely scandalous. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, lo I loved that, that thing that we did as a group there. And yeah, like I just finished the manuscript for a new book. It will be out next spring, spring 2018 from the feminist press. And it's tentatively titled, you have the right to remain fat. Um, oh, and so <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a, a really great intersectional deep dive into diet culture and fat phobia and its intersections with misogyny and other kinds of, of oppression. So it's like really, I think it's a really great book. It's a short book, like 20,000 words. So I can't wait for that to come out. That's amazing. And yeah, went on tour a couple of times and did a lot of things, but for the most part, really focused on my work around bodies and fatness and and really getting deeper into my activism and and my own like personal healing process, like with my, you know, I have like a, a sort of complicated like 
past. I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family and that combined with growing up like in a fat phobic misogynist culture created a lot of emotional work for me to, to sort of deal with. And so I've been going through that and kind of like figuring out that path. So it's, it's like a lot of things have happened in the past two and a half years. Yeah. In short. Oh my God. It sounds like amazing stuff. And it's cool too, that your professional and personal journey are sort of, I don't know, dovetailing, but like they're, you know, proceeding together. It sounds like. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so the book sounds really important and interesting and all the writing you do is so important and nuanced. And I think we talked a little bit off mic and have had been in the same online spaces discussing this where body positivity has now become such a mainstream movement or maybe not entirely mainstream, but it has become a lot more mainstream than it used to be. And it's really getting watered down. There's been a lot that has happened in the past couple of years in the body positive space that I think has diluted the message. And so I think it's really like the writing you're doing for Wear Your Voice is so helpful at sort of counteracting some of these negative or misappropriated or misapplied ways of understanding body positivity. Like the the biggest one that I'm thinking of is this idea that body positivity can go alongside efforts at losing weight, which, right. you know, it's like a very prominent person has sort of been leading the charge on that argument. And I can't tell you how many clients and listeners and people in my Facebook group are confused by it and like have this reaction of like, oh my God, maybe I didn't understand body positivity and health at every size after all, like second guessing right. themselves. Right, right. So yeah, I think I, you know, I'd be curious to hear how you would explain that. What would your response be if someone said like, well, I'm body positive and I'm also trying to lose weight? Right. It's complicated. And and like what's what's hard is I'm gonna give my analysis and my honest observation insofar as I'm able, right? Like mm-hmm. this is my true honest belief without any agenda besides to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I think that the the confusion that you're talking about, that's the point, right? Like the point of the shift, right? Because like even in the shift from what had been fat liberation, fat activism to body positivity, you can see just linguistically the movement away from language that centers liberation to positivity, right? And so, and right, like I think what's complicated about that, it begins in the verbiage shift, like the confusion begins with the shift in the language, right? Liberation is a demand. Positivity is something else. I don't, I, don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what positivity means, right? I don't understand it as a resource, right? Like, what does it mean to be positive about something? Like, and, and I think like, obviously, positivity is, is like a political concept that multiple different movements have used. But I think that the demand for liberation is very clear. And the movement from fat activism, fat liberation to body positivity was a shift away from clarity and an intentional shift away from the rhetoric and the conversation around liberation. So I, I like it's important to recognize that like this was a, a downward movement. It was a movement towards assimilation and away from liberation. And so just in that movement, you can see the beginnings of like 
of a confusion. It's un- like the next thing I'm thinking of is it's very unclear to me what the demands of body positivity are. And I think that there's a reason I'm confused and that's part, and, and I don't know them. It's because they're not being articulated and they're not being articulated because there's a murkiness that is gaining traction. Right. And so, and that's the thing I often, when I'm talking about this, I'm like, body positivity gains its traction in silence. The silent, like the traction is being gained through the lack of demands, through the lack of clearly articulated desires, right? And this is a lot about sexism and the fact that like this is a woman and femme focused movement, right? And like the idea, I think that as fat, like fat liberation in many ways was started by lesbians. It was part of like the second wave it was sort of a second wave feminist lesbian offshoot. Right. And as it shifted into more straight contacts with like more straight women, things moved away from liberation and towards this other sort of more nebulous concept of positivity. And so I think that it's not a surprise that people are confused. And I think that's the point, right? Because like what I'm finding is God, I have so many thoughts, right? Like I think about a political move, like let's talk about the fat activism movement or the fat liberation movement. If you think of it as kind of like, like a circle or a ring or an arena, right? There are people who kind of were, I feel like testing the boundaries of the movement and then kind of found like some gray area and decided to kind of pull out that gray area and make it into an entire movement. <laughs> and so I think that that's unfortunately a lot of times what happens as a, as something goes from a more anti-assimilationist politic to a more kind of conservative politic. So I think that's important to highlight and actually write about this in the book that's coming out, like what I learned from early fat activism as fat activism, which was deeply centered in a queer politic goes to body positivity and becomes deeply centered by like straight women, how there's a lot lost in that process. And a lot of it again has to do with misogyny and the fact that like women do a lot of work not to be threatening to men and that the culture is kind of like a big metaphorical man, right? <laughs> and so like depending on your relationship to and your proximity to men, you're going to have a different relationship to the status quo. It's just, I know this is like really theoretical and deep, but I'm going to oh, take a step it's back. It's so important though. This is great. <laughs> I want to tell you about two conversations. Well, one of them was a conversation I had and one of them was a lecture I attended. So the first is I recently had a conversation with an amazing, amazing fat activist based in the UK named Charlotte Cooper. And Charlotte has written extensively about fat liberation. And, you know, she has a PhD. She's just, she's done the work, right? And she has a book that came out somewhat recently that was derivative of her dissertation work. And so anyway, she is one of the most incredible people I've ever met and who has such a, such a commitment to justice and freedom and you know, for me, those are the two things that navigate my life, particularly freedom. And so we had a conversation because I was, I was asking her this exact question that you asked me. I was like, I'm feeling really frustrated. I'm really upset. Tell me that I'm not crazy. Tell me that I'm not being a meanie pants because some people want this thing. And, you know, and she, because that's kind of the argument that I think these women are making. They're making the argument that like fat activists are setting boundaries and that makes them mean. Right. And again, this goes, Back to misogyny, the idea that women don't get to set boundaries or get to say no ever. Yes. Right. So anyway, I I was talking to her and she was like, 
you're not crazy. Or she was like, you're like, you're not crazy. And I'm so glad that you're talking about this. It's so important. And she pointed out to me this like fascinating thing that again, having studied the like decades of fat activism from its beginnings in the 1960s, she said there were these these key component moments, right? That there were these women who were trying to talk about fatness and talk about liberty and talk about talk about like oppression, right? And what it meant to be a fat woman in this culture. And then from that conversation morphed the conversation around body image, which if anybody learned, you know, if anybody was acquainted with feminism, you know, 10 or I got introduced to feminism about 15 years ago. And my introduction to conversations around fatness were not really about fatness. They were about body image. And so it was through that nebulous use of, of body image away from talking about fatness that began kind of, so, so I'm saying like this, this conversation has a precedent in earlier feminism. And again, it goes back to, right. Like these, these like lesbian fat women were like arguing for rights for fat people. We're talking about oppression. We're talking about real issues that face fat people and the need to start with fat people when we're talking about this. And then these more kind of, again, like straight women oriented organizations and movements wrenched that conversation away (laughs) from the harder conversation into this bigger, broader, larger, quote, quote unquote, larger appeal conversation. But that also in that through the gaining of quote unquote appeal or traction, we've lost our central focus on freedom. And so it was really important to talk to her about that. And she sort of really talked about the, the precedent and the history of this. The second thing that I wanted to tell you about was I recently went to a lecture by Andy Ziesler, who wrote, we were feminists once from riot girl to cover girl, the buying and selling of a movement, I think is the entire title, but she was one of the founding editors of bitch magazine. And, you know, as I'm sitting there in this lecture, she, she starts talking about these different offshoots of these sort of faux feminisms. Right. And she, she uses the phrase choice feminism or marketplace feminism and the ways in which like, so, so she, she talks about feminism as like, at the end of the day, it's about the collective liberation of women. And that's what feminism truly is. And what's happened in the intervening years is that sort of as feminism has gained traction, there are these women who sort of want to exercise a deeply mediated version of feminism, largely using the framework of personal choice, largely using the framework of this is what I want and doing what I want is feminist. Right. It's a little bit of an intentional misinterpretation of what feminism is, right? I'm so glad to hear you say that because (laughs) choice feminism pisses me the fuck off and I haven't been able to articulate exactly what's wrong with it, but it just really doesn't feel authentic. Yes, no, no, totally. And I think it's important. I mean, A, I would read that book. B, it's important to lean into our intuition. It's important to like listen when that little flag goes off, when that little like bullshit meter goes off, girl, listen to it, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it's real. And I think it's important, right? Like we need to be able to access and listen to ourselves and trust ourselves because this bullshit is happening on a cultural scale. And it's important to recognize that there are some people who don't perpetuate bullshit 
on purpose, but there are many others who are intentionally litigating the gray area in order to make you feel crazy and to get personal benefits and personal gains. And it's really, really important to remember that like, if your politic is largely about serving just you, it's probably not feminism, right? Because like, Yes, you are a person who is like, who, you know, who is, a, if you're, if you're a woman, right? Like you're a person who is affected by sexism and misogyny. I mean, we all are. And there's obviously something to be said about autonomy and shoot like self-directing a life. But I think that it's not fair to always invoke feminism or body positivity in order to sort of excuse inexcusable behavior that, that honestly hampers freedom, you know? Mm-hmm. And hampers other people's freedom, too, because I think as you put it in one of your columns about this, if someone is asking you for body positive weight loss tips, right, or is claiming to be body positive, but also intentionally losing weight, that is perpetuating weight stigma. That is perpetuating oppression of fat people. Right. Right. No, totally. Totally. And I mean, I think this goes back to sort of like the collective reality, right? The collective reality is that dieting is an expression of distress. The truth is the dieting industry and diet culture are deeply oppressive, especially to women. And there's a history, a proven history of this. And so this is where that like collective liberation versus choice feminism, I call it libertarian feminism, (laughs) but like that kind of libertarian feminist versus that collective liberation intent, right? At the end of the day, we recognize, we have to recognize this, like it's impossible not to see that diet culture is about controlling women's lives. And that dieting is a sign, is literally a sign of, it's a survival technique. Dieting is about survival, right? Like it's literally taking a messed up cultural idea that you aren't worth anything if you're not thin and acting on it. So I don't know how, like <laughs> there's, I mean, there's any, there, there's any number of potential, again, intentionally misleading ways to express that, right? But like at the end of the day, that's what it is, right? And we have to be honest about, we have to stop pretending. I mean, I think for me also like to to return to sort of the gender stuff, a lot of times, you know, when we hear something like this, we feel like when we hear sort of a woman talking about wanting to lose weight and that being compatible with body positivity or, you know, fat liberation or, or whatever, it's okay to call bullshit. Even if you're not saying it out loud, it's okay to do it in your head and be like, girl, you're, you're like, I mean, I think mm-hmm. for me, I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I have compassion because this person is suffering and they're doing a lot of work. Like not only are they doing the work of the late, the gendered labor of weight loss, furthermore, they are doing the gendered labor of gaslighting themselves into <laughs> believing that they're not doing it. That's mm-hmm. a lot of work. And so for me, I'm just like, girl, you're suffering and you know, like, I just sort of, I feel like I'm able, I mean, and that's not everybody's response. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to dictate that you have to be compassionate with these folks, but I'm just saying for me, that's where I'm at because I'm like, and it's okay to, it's okay to have a response that isn't like, oh yeah, maybe that makes a lot of sense. Right. Cause we don't have to be nice. That's not our job in life. Our job in life is not to be nice to other people. Mm-hmm. I truly believe. <laughs> so, so true. That's a really helpful tip. I think too, because I'm so, there's like my mind's going in a million directions because so much of what you brought up is so important. 
I think so, you know, my trajectory into this work was through working with clients with eating disorders and also having my own eating disorder recovery. So like the slice of feminism slash body positivity slash, you know, maybe a a little shadow of fat acceptance and fat liberation at first was through body image, quote unquote, and eating disorder recovery. But then as I started to like get deeper into, you know, the literature and started paying attention to people like you and Isabel Fox and Duke and just like interesting people writing about bodies and food and diet recovery, I started to realize that it's about so much more than this little slice. And, you know, that fat acceptance and fat liberation, it's so, the word liberation is so interesting because it evokes, it sort of sounds very 60s to me. It feels very like old school, you know, in in the the liberation movements, but also, it's it's exactly what we're all looking for. And why did that word fall out of favor, right? Because it, you know, to me, it's like, I mean, I'm a thin person. I've never lived in a larger body, so I've never experienced weight stigma directly. But I mean, A, I have compassion and and have close friends who've experienced weight stigma. And also, I've perpetuated it on myself because of the thin ideal, because of the diet culture that we all live in, in my eating disorder, thinking that my body was too big and wrong and acting accordingly. So I kind of, I get it, you know, I get what it's like to feel like your body is wrong, but I have not experienced the systemic oppression of living in a larger body. And many of the people I work with, many of my clients are in the same boat. You know, they've never experienced that systemic oppression. Some of them certainly have. And that's an added layer to working through eating disorder recovery and body image recovery and diet recovery. But it's just I'm sort of like grappling with this because as the podcast has grown and my practice and work has evolved in this health at every size direction, I have found it so interesting how many people who are recovering from eating disorders and dieting have been on board and jumped on it and been, you know, very aligned with the messages I'm delivering. And yet, I think there is still, I think the concept of fat liberation and fat activism is so important for people of any body size to get on board with because fatter bodies are the ones that are more oppressed in our society and we need to work to liberate the most oppressed among us from a social justice perspective. And I think weight stigma and fat oppression affects everyone of every size body because we're all either fighting to not be fat, living in terror of being fat, or actually fat and being discriminated against and stigmatized and you know, feeling the systemic oppression. But there's no, there's no freedom from fat phobia whatever kind of body you live in. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's true? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess <laughs> that was sort of a roundabout response, but I'm just, you know, this idea of like body positivity has become, that's the way in, I think, for a lot of people, but it doesn't stop there. I think that is, and I'm almost thinking like the word like body liberation might be a nice twist on it, you know, that because I think the word fat, it's it's so important to center fat bodies in this discussion. But also, you know, what about people who are suffering from eating disorders, suffering from diet culture, who don't identify with that word, either because they are still trying to outrun it, or because it wouldn't ever apply to them because they live in smaller bodies. 
that is the part that's sort of, you know, I'm like, what what do we do with folks in that boat? How do people who are recovering and coming out of diet culture support the fat acceptance movement and fat liberation and also work toward their own healing and their own liberation from these constricting, gendered, oppressive ideals that women and femmes in our society are all forced into, and increasingly men in other ways too. But yeah, tell me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that interestingly, I think that the impulse that you're describing is kind of what leads us down this complicated road, right? I mean, I think what's hard is that like you were mentioning, and I was recently reading something about this. I feel so bad that I do not remember who said this quote. I'm sure that it's a very well-known person and I feel kind of a jerk. I don't remember who it is, but they sort of talked about how when we begin to heal a culture, we start with the most vulnerable population and we move our way back, right? And that is how we truly understand like justice and freedom right and and i think what's what's difficult is the impulse is consistently you know to take care of the people who are in the center and to prioritize their comfort and their needs and i think through that through that obscuring process we all lose right at the end of the day if we all are terrified of becoming fat whether we're fat or not Fatness needs to be the central theme of the work. Fatness as a word and a concept needs to be articulated, right? And I think that through the impulse to drag the conversation away from fat and into this more obscure body, it does a disservice to everybody. And I think it's like interesting, right? Because I think the impulse you're talking about is the very reason that eating disorder recovery is in such an abysmal place because fat phobia still dictates ED recovery, You cannot recover from an ED if you're not willing to recognize that you're terrified of fatness and that you're terrified of being like culturally marginalized the way that you've witnessed fat people being socially marginalized. And so I think that, I think that as terrifying as it is and as intimidating as it is, we will continue to come back to this place of confusion and heading in the wrong direction when we don't talk about the issue as what it really is. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a that's such an important point. It's like because the the root of all body dissatisfaction, a huge driver of eating disorders and certainly dieting is fat phobia, right? That's like where we're yeah. all starting from. That's where people start from when they go down that path. And if we could eradicate fat phobia, I often ask clients like how would you proceed? How would you act? How would you live if you lived in a world that wasn't fat phobic? if you lived in a world that actually embraced and welcomed bodies of all sizes, even the largest bodies, like what would you do then? And they always say like, well, I wouldn't diet, (laughs) try to lose weight. So yeah, that is, that is what we're aiming for. That is what we have to aim for. And yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm just, I mean, I think a lot of my listeners are also in that process of recovery. And so it's like, I just think about what can people do to, help rather than harm this movement of fat acceptance while also maybe benefiting from it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't have a great answer right now. I mean, I think a lot of it, some of the advice I have is, is very personal, right? Like I'm, I'm the kind of person who I have to wrap my head around something theoretically before it can become incorporated into my truth, into my body. 
something can be an idea and we sort of know it's like sound, like we know it makes sense and, and it checks out, but we don't feel it in our body, right? It does, it, it's not incorporated into us and to, into our worldview. And so anyway, I think for a lot of people, the place to start is to look at the sort of really intense history of diet culture, of fat phobia, like listen to what that people are telling us about the culture, right? I mean, one of the one of the stories that this that is coming to mind is I remember working with Saray Walker, who wrote Dietland, and you know we were talking about her experience touring with the book and doing readings, and she said one of the most consistent responses were people's aggressive disbelief that fat women experience the things that she talked about, which was you know things like being left in the middle of a date, you know, like when someone excuses themselves to go to the bathroom and then never comes back. Right. Or, you know, just like any number of things like like men being extraordinarily sexist and fat phobic and, but also through the lens of wanting to have sex with fat women, but also to humiliate and to hide and all these kinds of, anyway. So what, what I found really fascinating about her telling me this was there was this commitment to the realities of fat phobia not being true, right? Because the, the the hard thing is, and the the investment in that refusal to to hear the truth and accept it as truth is about for a lot of people, it's about the fact that they don't want to believe that they live in a culture where people can do that. They don't want to believe that their loved one, their brother or their mom or you know, whoever could be a perpetrator of this thing and that the culture is okay with that, you know? And so it's it's hard, right? I think. I think what's really difficult for people is that people who are in a body that is socially acceptable, they've never had to witness the culture the way that people on the periphery have been forced to. And so the people on the periphery have had the experience of heartbreak over and over and over and over and over again. And it's through that heartbreak that they are able to truly see something that people in the center cannot see, right? Either because they because they have not been exposed to it or because they are willfully choosing not to see it. And I think what's difficult is, right, because if you if you think of investment in the culture as a marriage, there's those of us who maybe let, let's return to the marriage metaphor actually before I go that way. So if we think of it as a marriage, right? It's like looking at the person who you've been sharing a bed with for your whole life and having to recognize that they're violent, right? And that they're a horrible person. And I understand, right? Like for the people who, right? Like, and I think this is like the metaphor, I'm going to continue the metaphor, right? The person who your boyfriend has been sleeping with when you're sleeping in the dark, right? Like that person who's never been inside the house, they know what that person is like. And you, because they haven't let you see who they are, you see a different version. And maybe you suspect something weird is happening deep down, but you're like, no, no everything checks out, you know, everything's cool, right? And so I think what's important to realize is that the woman who's sleeping in the bed is always going to have the hardest time recognizing that the person they're married to is an asshole. And I understand that, but I like, I, but I think like the important thing is to have that moment. Right. And I, and I think like, sorry, I'm going to continue with the, I'm going to continue with the metaphor. metaphor, Right. Thank you. I think what's really hard is what does it mean to admit that he's an asshole? It means different things to different people, right? Like for the person in the bed in the house, it means losing the house, losing the dream 
losing the investment, all those years you spent building a story gone. Right. And so women don't want to do that. Right? We see it in actuality in actual marriage and we see it on a cultural scale as well. And so I think it's important, you know, and, and I get it. It's terrifying, right? It's terrifying to have to look at this culture and recognize that it's not here to serve you, that it's not going to benefit you, that being a winner, quote unquote, in the game of the status quo doesn't serve anyone, including the, the, like the number one star. Right. And I think that it's really, really, really hard for women, the closer they are to socially acceptable, the harder it is for them to let go because they've also had the most access to that, to that story. There's a a lack of will to look at the suppurating, disgusting, violent thing that's happening underneath. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really well said. And I think it very viscerally describes this reaction that people have to women in larger bodies refusing to diet or really people, anyone in the larger body refusing to diet, right? Like Lindy West was just on the podcast and she talked about this experience of like getting this just visceral hate from people who are so invested in dieting and refuse to accept that she could just, as she put it, like, you know, she felt like they saw her as just skipping to the end of the game without going through the steps, right? right? It's like she got the happiness and the, you know, self-worth and stuff without having to go through the torture that they were putting themselves through. And so that's, you know, that breeds resentment, which I think is definitely a huge root of why fat people who are unapologetic experience so much hate and trolling, right? It's challenging the status quo and people who have a lot to lose with the status quo don't want to let go. Right. And it's it's like that, you know, person who's threatening your your marriage, right? It's, you know, you you want to be willfully ignorant to what's actually going on. But yeah, I think coming out of it, recognizing that your husband is an asshole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, is a huge step. But then, you know, then the question is like, and this is what I see for a lot of people who are recovering from eating disorders or who are, you know, like fat acceptance is helpful to them in their recovery from diet culture, but not wanting to give up all of it, right? Wanting to, you know, can I keep the house? Can I, can I keep the car? Can he just move out and I can still have all these trappings of success, you know, not wanting to give up, occupying a space of more cultural privilege. Right, right. And I mean, I get it. Like and and I mean, I think what's important, oh, and this is going to this is going to be a bomb, right? Um <laughs> right. I think get what's ready. scary what's scary is that those that's about fear, right? Like those those desires are about fear and it's so scary, right? It's so scary cuz it's a huge big ball that we're kind of unraveling. Right. And I think what's hard is we're terrified of, we're terrified of like knocking over the card that's going to knock over the whole house. Right. And, and I totally, I totally understand that fear. Everything in our culture drives to maintain and amplify that fear. So it makes complete sense that we'd be terrified because that's no accident. I think what I want to offer my own life as a, as a sort of example or a counter example. Right. So I just got out of a relationship with like a, you know, the dream man, right. He's like an attorney in big law in Palo Alto and he has a big home and overlooking the ocean. And we would like watch whales and sip like 
Cabernet in the <laughs> evenings, right? From his living room and all that stuff, right? Like, and sort of that, that whole life, right? And I'm not trying to say that like anybody who's living that life is secretly not feeling it, but I wasn't. And I think a lot of people aren't, you know, and I kind of was going through the motions and I kept thinking like, why doesn't this feel right? You know, why doesn't this feel good? Why does it feel like something is being taken from me every day rather than something being restored? And I had to kind of dig. I had to dig for that answer, right? I and I, I it, the answer came in in multiple forms. Like the first was that this narrative was not mine. It was a, it was a story that I that I inherited and that I was told was was the right thing for me. A one size fits all model of what woman's happiness looked like, right? So it wasn't my narrative. The second thing I had to realize was, you know, I was raised by immigrants who. One, my generation was supposed to be the one that inherited the American dream. And this guy seemed like that, right? This guy seemed, he had all of the sort of like outward appearance of the American dream that I have been genetically predisposed almost <laughs> to want to achieve, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, I grew up with bootstrapping parents. Like they were, you know, my grandparents raised me. They were like, you can have anything you want as long as you work twice as hard for half as much. Right. And it was just like, there was, and and sort of the inferiority, like the racial inferiority was bred into what was sort of built into the ideology that I learned growing up. Right. Which was essentially that I like the ideal way to capitalize on the American dream was to marry a white man and have half white children and eventually create and like have, have enough couplings with white people down the road that we will be indistinguishable as Brown people sometime in the future. Right. And I think that like, I know it's scary and awful and hard to hear it said as bluntly as that, but it's true. Um, (laughs) so, so so anyway, I'm like, so it's like, I was realizing, Oh, this was my, this was about, again, another narrative, the pressure to become part of the American dream, right. That I learned growing up. And then I think like the other, the other strains were simple, right? Like fat phobia, like the idea that I was taught that what I want doesn't matter, that what my body is telling me is wrong and that I'm hurting myself just by virtue of living. Right. And all these kinds of things. And so like, that was a big part of why I was there too. Like there was a redemption element to it as well. Right. If I can like perform this story, if I can do that story of the status quo better than anyone else in this body. Holy shit. I've like won, right? Like I thought that's the mic drop moment, you know? <laughs> and, and so all of that, again, all of that is story. All of that is a narrative. None of that is about genuineness. None of it is about authenticity. None of it. Right. So I decided, and this was when I was mentioning earlier about Jamaica and how these women changed my cells when I was with them, it just became clear that I wanted to live a life where I was amplified, where my truest desires were the center of my life and that I was going to deal with whatever I had to deal with because that, that desire was so sacred because, because my freedom is the most sacred thing to me. And so I realized that I had to leave. Right. And I I left that relationship and I ended up, you know, having to take a step back from my relationship to my family as a result, all this sounds terrifying, but it was very organic in the moment. Right. And so, and then I began to, as I stepped away from these sort of like complicated narratives that weren't working for me, all of a sudden my desire 
inside of me like blossomed, you know, it just blossomed. Like I just sort of in my head, it's like this beautiful, like flower opened up and I could all of a sudden realize what it was that I did want and what it was that I didn't want. And it was like, I think I'm going to summarize the story by sort of saying like, when we unleash, when we like, when we let go of fear and we unleash the ferocity and the passion that each one of us has as a human on this like magical planet, um, (laughs) we create a life that is everything that we want and looks nothing like what we expected. Yeah, no, it's, I think that's the, the idea of liberation, right? It's like stepping into something unknown and that's why it can feel scary. It's, it's uncharted territory. It's you having to listen to your instincts rather than the stories you've been told your whole life, which has some interesting parallels with food as well, right? With recovering from diet culture, governing your relationship with food into intuitive eating and trusting your intuition around food and your body and knowing what's right for you. It's, which, I mean, I often, you know, notice this in clients and say this all the time. Like when you start to go down that road of recovering from diet culture and into intuitive eating, it's like everything becomes more intuitive because you're forced to connect more with your intuition. But I mean, for you, it sounds like it maybe happened years after that aspect of your relationship with food. And it was just more about like being in an environment where you felt truly able to be yourself. Yeah. I mean, and I think for some people, like, wait, there's like steps in the process Like you were saying about how body positivity can be like a stepping stone into something else. And I'm, I'm cool with there being these sort of stepping. I mean, I, in a lot of ways, I think of intuitive eating as kind of a stepping stone into like truly liberating your relationship to food, right? Because like we have to start with a practice and then when we have enough confidence and healing, we can then move on to something that is very, very internally driven, very intuitive. I was recently thinking about healing, right? And like, how, how do we move out of that fear? And I think what's hard is that we can't, a lot of times moving out of the fear is about a deep organic desire to do something different. Not, not a desire to avoid living in fear, but rather a desire to like actually live in your, in, in your own greatness. Right. And I've been thinking about, you know, how do I conceptualize the healing that allows this to happen? And I, and I was realizing, right, like healing is intention plus time. That is the recipe for healing, right? Like not just time and not just intention, but actually both. And I think sometimes like intention is just waking up and, and saying, I want to be free or like, I want to, I want to like live a life on my own terms, whatever, however that manifests for you, just saying that thing one time a day is enough, right? Is like, is an intention. And so I think for people who are really frustrated is to really remember that, mm-hmm. <laughs> to remember that that's the formula for healing. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, cause time is such an essential ingredient. I definitely hear people say a lot like, oh, I've been immersing myself in this health at every right. size, you know, body positive slash fat acceptance, you know, whatever flavor they, they identify with world. And I totally get it. I want to break up with diet culture. I want to be done, but like, why am I not done? You know, right. and it's like, but also the time part that that's an essential ingredient. Cause, and also, so you've been talking a lot about sort of like embodiment, right? Integrating things into your body, making it feel like a part of you and sort of much more internally motivated rather than something you have to think about intellectually. And I think that's such a huge piece of this too, is like doing the intellectual work, grappling with changing your thinking or challenging your thinking 
often is the starting point, right? Reading or hearing something that blows your mind and then sort of wrestling with it. But then at some point, it it does have to be embodied. It does have to get integrated in a way that feels like muscle memory almost. Yes. What has that experience been like for you? Like what practices or has it just been time and sort of reflection that has helped you get to that point? Yeah. I mean, it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of that formula, like just intention and time. I also, I work with a therapist. I use an app called Talkspace and it's like a, it's, it's an app mediated therapy service. Essentially. It's really great. And I get to sort of text my therapist whenever I want and she replies and it's really wonderful. And then I can like add on like video appointments and stuff like that. So it's, it's perfect for me in a lot of ways. And so it's been really great, like sort of having this ongoing therapeutic support, like even when I'm not talking to her, just knowing that I can is really wonderful. But anyway, so that's been, that's been really, really helpful. Just having somebody who I know is kind of there and who I can have this kind of exchange with where like if something really hard is happening, I can just kind of tell her about it and dump into the text, all the feelings that I'm having. So that's been really helpful. I think honestly, I've had to learn how to trust myself and that's scary and I hate doing it. Right. Like, I mean, women do not, we're, I mean, culturally across the board, we are not taught, people are not taught to trust their intuition. And I think this is especially true for women. Women are, are gaslit constantly by the culture and we're constantly also taught to gaslight ourselves. For those of us who have experienced body specific, like fat shaming and, and dieting and restricting and all these kinds of things, that is a primary sort of locus of gaslighting, right? Because what are we, what do we get taught? You're not hungry. You're just bored. You're not hungry. You're just tired. You're not this, you're just this. Right. And it's like, and, and it's sort of like, it's, it's this undercutting of the most primitive reptilian information that our body has access to. We are taught to shove that down as much as possible. And so I know for certain, I have had a lot of difficulty just trusting myself and just allowing myself the space to do it, right? Because it means change (laughs) and change is scary depending on what you're like, wait, for me, like I'm a single person, I do not have children and I'm a renter, right? So like, I don't have to, I don't have real estate I have to worry about. I don't have a partner who I have to like make life decisions with. I don't have children who I need to prioritize when I'm making any kinds of like decisions, small or large. And so I want to contextualize that with like, I know that I have more freedom and more leeway than many women do. But that being said, I still believe that our intuition needs to be centered. And I think that the world around us will settle into place. Everything will be okay, right? And I think that it's been hard to give myself that permission. But essentially, with in a lot of ways, the confidence that my therapist gave me in just constantly telling me, trust yourself, trust yourself, trust yourself, right? I was able to make some major life decisions recently, like I was telling you that really shifted and but but at the end of the day the life decisions were large but it was it was again about letting go of the fear letting go of the desire to curate a story and to just listen to what i actually wanted and to to sort of like let the chips fall where they may and that's an incredible act of of self trust but yeah i mean i'm trying to think another thing that i did and I've had so many complicated feelings about this. I'm still, I have, I'm not talking to my family right now. 
which was unthinkable to me. I mean, unthinkable. If someone told me that at some point in my life that I would not talk to my family, I would have laughed in their face, right? I mean, I was always, I am the golden child. I am the dutiful daughter. That is who I am, right? And I'm the one who brings the sunshine. I'm the one who's the success. And and like, you know, I in in the in the face of like stifling dysfunction in my childhood, I was able to bootstrap my way into this functional adulthood, right? And like I'm supposed to be the shiny example that nothing is wrong with my family. <laughs> and so a lot, a lot of pressure. And so the choice to not speak to them, I realized as I was ending my relationship with my, with my last partner, with that dream narrative, I realized that a lot of the reason that I had been in this relationship that I didn't want to be in was because of pressure from my family. And it was very difficult. I mean, at the beginning, I was like, I'm just not going to tell them that we broke up, right? Because I was voicing to, especially my grandmother, who, as I mentioned, raised me, very old school woman who believes that like, you know, her whole thing is like, women aren't happy in this world. Men run the world. The sooner that you realize that, the better off you'll be, right? Like, I mean, honestly, as blunt as she was, women are getting that message today, not in that exact verbiage, but trust me. Everything in the culture is telling them that. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's true. Evidence of that, like dieting. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, it's okay if you're unhappy for literally decades. What matters is something else, right? What, like, other thing. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, my grandmother was very blunt because she came from a generation where women openly discuss this stuff. Mm. <laughs> so, it's interesting how it's gone more underground. In oh, recent yeah. years, right? Like since women's liberation yes. was incomplete, really. And and now it's like we have this sort of guise of liberation and feminism and, you know, choice feminism being sold as like the way to go. But all of this stuff is still happening. It's just much more underground. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is this is crazy making for women. It makes mm-hmm. it because we're being told that we have all all the rights. We've never been freer in history, which is true. But like we have all the things and what are we complaining about? <laughs> you know, right. why are we so unhappy, right? And it's like it's like and again, this is this is gaslighting, right? This is essentially saying this is undercutting your sense that something very wrong is happening and telling you that you're just choosing to see it as wrong because you are a brat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. Or because you're crazy. And so, yeah, like, I mean, so my grandmother was, I mean, I was voicing to her reluctance about the relationship, reluctance about marriage, all these kinds of things. And she was giving him our heirlooms as I'm telling her, I don't think I can do this. She's like handing, I'm like looking at one of them right now that he actually returned to me after our breakup. But I'm just like, man, that was like one of her favorite things. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, in a lot of ways, she was doing what she thought was love, but she was also throwing me under the bus. Right. And I had, and I had to kind of sit there and realize like, you know, she loves me. And also this love is hurting me. And I'm not in a point in my healing where I can hold both of us, you know, and I, and I had to make that decision. Right. And just, and just trust that in the same way that I had had to hold all the trauma and the dysfunction in my childhood that she can hold me right now trying to heal from that. 
And I just had to trust that it would work out, you know? And I mean, the truth is every, every day I'm like, oh my God, she's definitely going to be dead today. Right. She's definitely <laughs> dying now. She's like, and she's also one of those women very like, I mean, very Latin American femininity, right? Like she, she like would love to die when I wasn't talking to her. Cause that would be like, <laughs> like, like she's like, you know, she's got the whole revenge, like suffering fantasy thing mm-hmm. going on, which I understand. Um, and so I'm just like, okay. Right. I've got to just trust that things are going to be okay. And that right now I get to decide what love looks like. I get to decide what her loving me looks like. And right now it means I'm not talking to you and you have to respect that. And so that was like big. And I mean, I I have not talked about this publicly. I'm going to tell you something that's so wild. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. Oh my God. I'm already almost crying. So (laughs) (laughs) this is so moving. Oh my God. Oh, thank you for sharing all this. Seriously. This is like, I mean, I think it's so important for people to hear this and just so brave of you and amazing to be at the place where you can trust and do what's right for you. And despite yeah. all this, despite the pain it's caused. No, I mean, the greatest hope is that everybody has this, right? Everybody gets, I mean, right. Like that's our birthright. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, what was really wild was after I decided to, you know, I decided to write them a letter and just let them know, set the boundary, let them know what was going on, let them know that I loved them and that, you know, there was something inside of me that just needed to be resolved and it had to be something I resolved alone. And so once I wrote the letter and I kind of like, decided to, um, you know, not take their calls or anything. This incredible transformation has started to happen. It's only been a couple of months, but it's wild. Right. And some of it's going to sound kind of like, I mean, it's almost too magical to eat. It's like, it's all, I'm almost scared to tell you cause it's so magical. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to sound like a total nutbag who lives <laughs> on a mountain but I'm just going to trust that you can hold it or not. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> and I'm going to knock on wood for you because I'm also super into magic and superstition. So yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah, like I noticed one of the things that I noticed first was a radical transformation in my sexuality, right? Like I am somebody who has for my, almost my entire life from my, from my you know sexual debut at 17 onward, I've loved to have lots of sex with lots of people. And in a lot of ways, that was really joyful and really fun and really amazing. And I think that I, I hit a point somewhat recently where I was like, you know, something about this doesn't feel right to me. Like the way that I was having sex, like particularly, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the number of people I was having sex with, but it was, it was the way that I was having sex with them that felt really reminiscent of the messed up parts of my childhood that were, then I felt like I was in an abandonment holding pattern. And so I was like, okay, this, this is starting to feel weird to me. And so I reached out to my therapist and kind of told her what was going on. And she, you know, she, we sort of started to devise a plan. She was like, what would it look like to not seek out sex with a new person this week or whatever? And then I would sort of try to do it. And then I, and then I would just do it. I would just have sex with somebody. But anyway, so the the point being, I want to really, really sort of heavily highlight that I don't think that having sex with lots of people is a bad thing. But for me, it had hit a point where I was like, this feels like I'm reenacting trauma through my genitals and I need to like figure this out. And so anywho, um, working through all this, I decided to stop talking to my family and like, it's so wild. Like my, like that drive that I had that uncontrollable drive to have sex with every babe who was around me 
just like went from this like super loud dominant voice in my head to pretty much gone. Right. Like, I mean, I had no, like the compulsive, I mean, it, cause I, and I want to like highlight it was, it was compulsive, right? It was like this kind of desire that eats you alive. Not the kind of desire that you're like, Oh, this is good. It was like overwhelming me and taking over my life. And so, and when I decided to sort of step away, that sexuality just felt like it went from out a big monster outside of my body that was dragging me around to something that was inside of me again. And that, that I could make grounded choices around, you know, and it was just like, so incredible. Like yesterday, some guy was walking to the beach and some guy asked me if he'd give me a foot massage and he was very cute. (laughs) And it it was like, it was kind of an interesting experience. Anyway, the point is like, you know, he asked me and like kind of that uncontained compulsive self would have just been like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Right. Like, and I I would have sort of curated the whole thing such that whatever, but instead I was like, actually I don't think I want a foot massage from a stranger today. And it's not that I don't want it. it, I might want it tomorrow. If he had approached me on Thursday, I might've said yes. But like right now, right now, as I'm walking to the beach, I do not want a foot massage. I want to go to the beach without you. Right? (laughs) It was like, I could access that feeling rather than that compulsive, like, oh yeah, sexual pleasure. It's going to be so good. Right. I was able to access this other desire, which was not genital, but like heart-based desire to like be in the ocean, which is my healing space. Right. And so that was wild. My period has changed. Like my period has stopped hurting. Oh my God. And the blood brighter. is oh, wild? Oh, wow. I was like telling my friend yesterday and she was just like, that's wild, but also I'm not surprised. So those are just some like and I mean, I, I know that's, it's just like, those are just a couple of things that have really shifted for me. And again, it's, it's like just in a lot of ways, yes, it's not having to deal with the family stuff and all that, but it's also just the radical act of acting on my desire rather than continuing to just keep things like business as usual. And just that had like this radical potential to like alter these, these parts of my life that I just never imagined could change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the, I mean, with regard to the sexuality, it's like that was sort of almost maybe a coping mechanism or a way to sort of get what you wanted, right? In that moment or follow like a a sort of sanctioned way to follow your desire because it wasn't okay to follow your desire over here in the family sphere. Yes. No. And I think a lot of times, and I've been thinking a lot about this, a lot of times we experience we experience the manifestation of suffering and trauma as pleasure. And so I've been thinking about this, right? Because like sometimes when we don't have, when we don't have room for whatever reason to feel sad or feel angry or, or whatever, sometimes that energy will move to different parts of our bodies and it might manifest in like pain, right? Like an emotionally specific pain. Like one of the things I notice when I'm around my family is my like left hip hurts, right? And so I know that that's a place where I'm holding that trauma. But I think my vagina was also, is also a place where I have felt like I could safely express incredibly intense desires without any emotional repercussions for the most part, like from my family. You know what I mean? That's so interesting. Yeah. And so I like, I've been thinking so much about that and like how trauma can be experienced as like sexual pleasure. So I've, I've been thinking, I've been so many thoughts, right? So many feelings. Oh, yes. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, 
That's yeah. so fascinating. Did you, like in your family, did you experience any shaming around sexuality or was it an area that you were sort of allowed to be free in? No, I mean, I was raised in a Pentecostal household. So, oh, wow. so yeah, it was not, it was not like a sex positive <laughs> space, but it's like fasting, right? Because I saw my vagina as like, as a mode of escape. A portal. Right. Like women have used their vaginas to escape things for millennia, right? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine who was telling me that her mother, it turns out her mother married her father because there was this man who was refusing to like stop courting her where she was living. And so she moved across the planet to marry this other dude, to get away from this other dude. And I was just like, I'm Marriage is more than genitals, but like there, marriage is a lot about the contractual exchange of vaginas, right? And so <laughs> I mean, but it's like, it's funny, right? Because I was thinking, I was just writing about how I too, when I was younger, I too intuitively understood that I could use my vagina to get out of my parents' house and that I could use it also to get out of my feelings. And so it just, you know, it was just like, it makes complete sense that I would have that relationship to it, but it's like really, it's challenging. And I still don't, you know, I still don't have resolution around any of this. Right. And I don't know that I ever will. I've just been trying to witness and be patient. And I think that that's another thing that goes back to how do we begin to, to sort of precipitate the healing. A lot of times it's just giving ourselves the space to witness something that's happening. Right. Like, like for me, I was, I was sort of with, witnessing, like, I'm like, okay, I like having sex with randos and that's really <laughs> fun. Right. And I was like, and it's like, okay, it's really fun. And I'm like, but there's this other thing that I'm like, I think something else is going on. And I'm like, okay, so we're just going to witness that. We're not going to like try and disrupt the behavior because it's still fun to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to witness it. We're going to like, I mean, I'm going to witness how I'm feeling. I'm going to witness what it is that I'm doing. What are the mechanisms that I'm engaging? Um, what am I trying to get out of this? And through the witnessing process, I was able to create space for transformation. That's so powerful. That really resonates with me too, because that's been a huge aspect of my healing from disordered eating and from other, like I was sort of compulsive around relationships and got into a lot of bad ones where I was fixing and, you know, I was the the codependent, you know, classic dynamic. So being able to just notice like what was coming up for me in those moments, because trying to avoid that compulsion and not go into it was just not going to happen and was causing a lot of shame and angst as well. So, you know, it really, through the process of therapy too, that practice of being the compassionate witness to your own mind was so important and powerful. And that really was what allowed me to heal from it as well, like to be able to notice what's happening in my body when I'm with this person or when I'm doing this thing, you know, like what's, yes. yeah. because, and it goes back to that embodiment, right? Like learning to connect with the signals that your body is giving you, you don't have to act on those right away. And of course, like you said, as women were so, and you know, people of all genders were encouraged to disconnect from our intuition, and not trust it. So like jumping into acting on it right away is pretty scary and is is a tall order. But if we can just notice, like that's that's the first step and that's relatively safe, you know, to be able to notice. Yes. Yes. And I mean one of one of my favorite pieces of advice from a friend of mine was that she was like you have to witness your life honestly. 
one of the things that she, cause I, I mean, we were talking about a complicated professional decision and I was sort of realizing that I wasn't wild about this professional decision, but that some part of me needed it, right? Because I was going through too much. I needed to anchor myself to some kind of success. Right. And so she was like, okay, you're going to make that decision, but you don't get to lie to yourself about it. You have to tell yourself I am doing this because I'm in an emotionally difficult place and I need something as a crutch, Mm. (laughs) you know? And then it was like, and so, and it was through that grounding that I was able to like, I mean, I still did it, right? It still wasn't like in my ideal world, I wouldn't have made that decision, right? But I still made the decision, but there was still room for that compassion like you're talking about. And also that honesty and that we can hold all of that, in fact, because we're very complex. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that compassion for yourself as a prerequisite for change, I think was also a huge aspect of my healing, like recognizing that, okay, judgment and shame has actually gotten me to the place where I'm at now. It's, I can't do more of the same. That's not going to lead to healing, right? It's got to be something very different. And I think a lot of people at first, you know, have fear of self-compassion because it's like, well, am I just going to let myself stay in this disordered behavior or this thing that's causing me pain or whatever? And like, you don't have to give up the desire to change something that's hurting you, but also having compassion for where you're at now is the only grounds for being able to change because otherwise it's just going to be, it's just going to re-traumatize you. Right. And it's just going to create more conditions for needing to use that coping mechanism. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the thing, like, right. Like paradoxically, this is what's always, I think, seemingly confusing to people when I work with them, which is I'm like, it is the complete and utter relinquishing of shame that leads to the behaviors that are going to best suit you and that are going to, that are going to nourish you. And I think that our impulse is to, yeah, is to remedy shame with more shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's not how that works. Nope. Yeah. Like that's a broken system. That's, that's how we got into this mess and we can't expect to have it get us out of it. So acceptance yes. and compassion are really the only way. Oh, well, oh my God, Virgie, we're like, I could talk to you forever. This is amazing. Thank you for sharing so much of your own journey. And I feel like this is a super, uh, this is actually going to be our hundredth episode. So I feel like this is very fitting as a milestone. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's super perfect for that. So yeah, tell us about Babe Camp and where people can learn more about it and also just your work in general. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Babe Camp is a four-week online course for people who are ready to break up with diet culture. There's one happening in June and there's another one in the fall. Registration is open for both currently through my website, virgitovar.com, V-I-R-G-I-E, T as in Tom, O, V as in Victor, A-R.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Virgie Tovar. I've got a number of events coming up, including one in Menlo Park with Jessamine Stanley, whose new Mm. book, Everybody Yoga, has just come out. And then I'm doing an event a few days before that in early May in Iowa City at Flyover Fashion Fest. And let's see... 
I think that's about it. Like look for the book in spring of 2018 yes. and I'm hoping, hoping to announce an IRL intensive, a babe camp intensive in San Francisco in the fall, but I have to secure the location first, but that'll be on my website. Oh, that's so exciting. I'll put all of that in the show notes as well. So people can find it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Virgie. It's so wonderful talking with you as always. Same. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in food psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no 